Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. You've no doubt heard that famous quote by Thomas Edison, right? The one about genius being 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And there is no doubt plenty of truth to that. But for the people we'll meet on this week's show, inspiration is nothing short of huge. That's right. Over the next hour, we'll explore the idea of inspiration and what it is that gets our creative wheels turning. We'll find out what happens when a massive oil spill inspires you to ditch your four wheels and start pedaling around on two. Most people think it's great. They don't think I'm nuts or anything. We'll hear what keeps D.C.'s high school valedictorians inspired, no matter how trying their circumstances. Not many people in my family uh, went to college or even finished high school, so I wanted to, you know, go and make them proud. And we'll explore how grown-ups are being theatrically inspired by puppets. I still think in this country, people think of it as, a, you know, an art for children. It's like, oh, I'm a puppeteer. Oh, great. You know, how many birthday parties do you do a year, you know? So naturally, inspiration can come from pretty much anywhere and anything. In the case of the guy we're about to meet, inspiration comes from a long time, love it or hate it, fixture here in the D.C. region. Doors opening, step back to allow customers to exit. When boarding, please move to the center of the car. The metro system. Step back, doors closing. Jason Mendelson moved from his native Florida to the D.C. area a few years back. Mendelson is a longtime musician. He writes and sings songs, and he plays a whole scat of instruments. And in 2011, he decided to compose one song inspired by each and every station in the Metro system. Mendelssohn has just released the fourth volume of his series, Metro Songs. It's called Multitracking and features nine new tracks and or stations, I guess, including Friendship Heights. I saw an ad in the post Man, those shoes, they were the most I'm going to friendship I need a use for my loot Like a nice Armani suit I'm going to friendship I met with Mendelssohn and his band, The Open Doors, in Alexandria, Virginia, as they put the finishing touches on Volume 4. And I asked Mendelssohn how the whole Metro Songs endeavor began. Uh, one of the first songs I wrote after moving here was National, which is about the station renaming controversy at National Airport. What's in a name? $400,000. Who's on the take? Sign engine stallers. This is insane. I thought that was a really interesting story, and as, an, as a new resident, I wanted to learn things like that about the city's history. And then I thought, well, there's probably a story everywhere if I just do the research. So I kind of started this Metro Songs thing just as a way to kind of get familiar with the area and hopefully contribute something that's interesting and relevant. So was your plan at that time to do like one CD per line? Yeah, first I thought I would do, oh, I'll do the blue line first. And that was just ridiculous because there's so many stations, even just on the blue line or any line, 
Plus, I wanted to I wanted to write whatever I wanted to write about. I didn't want to be you know constricted to writing about a certain line. And naturally, I started writing about other stations on other lines. So by the time I got up to like twelve songs, I was like, well, that's enough for an album, and just made a CD and started on the next one. So in terms of your research, would you just ride the line and hang out at that station for a while? It's really about the locations and the history of neighborhoods and characters, both real and fictional. Gallery Place was like that, because we were in, in the sta- the metro station at Gallery Place, and there was a homeless guy in there shouting all kinds of gibberish. But one of the things he said was, uh, America, this is the home of the brave, the home of the homeless. And that, that's the first line of the song. This is the home of the brave, it's the home of the homeless. This phrase was spoken by a homeless man. At Gallery Place, he pleaded his case. At Gallery Place, he pleaded his case. And Uh, before I turn the mic on, you were talking about the concept for the song about Wheaton. Fascinates me. How did that idea come about? Well, uh, the Wheaton Escalator is the second longest in the world, the longest in the Western Hemisphere, and the escalator ride takes about two minutes and 45 seconds. And so I thought it would be neat to have kind of an interactive song. So do not adjust your set. If you start the song uh, on your headphones at the top of the escalator and ride down, it will end at the very bottom of the escalator. If you ride the escalator here at Wheaton, you will recognize that it is different than the other escalators you have ridden. They are not as long as this one. Here's a fact you may not know. It is the longest in the western And along the way, as you pass each of the speaker boxes on the side of the tunnel there, there's various sound effects that will happen in either ear, depending on the side that they're on. I don't know what I'm gonna do when I get to the top. So it sounds like you combine a lot of styles of music. Um, yeah, we, we try and cover all different kinds of styles of music, you know, to, to base it on the character of the location. I mean, one example, I guess, would be Adams Morgan where there's a, a large Latino and Middle Eastern community. And so I did salsa with an electric sitar for that song. And for archives, my first impression of archives moving here was the ice skating rink that they set up there in the winter and so that was my first impression of it and I thought it would be neat to write a little song that sounded like the ice skating in the old Snoopy cartoons so it's a Vince Guaraldi kind of jazz waltz Has you been working on this? Anything like sort of surprised you about the city itself as you're sort of looking at the city in this different way, this musical way, this lyrical way? Probably more, I'm more surprised about myself that 
I can't believe I lived in one place for 30 years, and now I have this whole playground to explore. So, yeah, check out Volume 4. Multi-tracking. Not single tracking. That's bad. <laughs> That's weekends on the red line. No offense, Wamata. <laughs> That's local musician Jason Mendelson. Now that Metro Songs Volume 4 multi-tracking is out, he's more than halfway through the Metro system. He just has 41 more stations to go. For more information on Jason Mendelson and The Open Doors, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story of inspiration actually has its roots in tragedy. It could turn out to be the worst environmental disaster in more than... A new government estimate puts the flow rate between one and a half million to over two and a half million gallons of oil we a day. We cannot rest and we will not rest until BP permanently seals the wellhead. The 2010 oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico provoked reactions of rage and sadness across the globe. But for one local resident, it also inspired determination. Determination to go car-free. Her name is Margaret Wohler. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us her story. Margaret Wohler's aim wasn't to become that crazy bike lady. I think the quickest way to get people turned off to whatever it is you, you embrace is to just talk about it too much. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, no, I don't want to have that happen. In fact, she says she's always regarded her decision to dump driving for pedaling as a personal challenge and not a political statement, even if it was a choice inspired by the highest profile environmental disaster in recent memory. You know, like everybody else, I just sort of did what was convenient and I just drove without thinking. Um, but then when that blew up, just seeing the oil billowing out like smoke from that, you know, pipe-like thing on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. You know, I just felt so anxious seeing that night after night and, and just feeling like, ah, you know, would somebody please just shut that thing off? Wooler says the images of wildlife drenched in oil sent her over the edge, leading her to a realization about her consumption of that king of all petroleum products, gasoline. Push had come to shove, really. I just felt like it's one of these products that you just can't hardly justify buying anymore. Fitness-wise, Wohler was further along than many of us would have been. She's been a distance runner for most of her life. But quickly, she learned that being in biking shape was pretty different than being in running shape. I remember particularly the hills being tough. You know, great, walking the bike, it's raining out, you know, you get a flat tire. It's just like, ugh. Wohler, who works as a teaching naturalist at Huntley Meadows Park in Fairfax County, also had to get used to carrying everything she needed for the day in a small backpack. I think for a lot of us, if you drive the car a lot during the day, it becomes sort of an extension of your purse. <laughs> you start hauling around stuff that you don't need half the time, but it's convenient. You've got all these things. Well, I can't do that because I would accumulate too much stuff and it would be too heavy. So it f has forced me to be really organized, which has been a pretty great thing overall. It's around lunchtime on a Monday, Wohler's day off. She's biking to the grocery store, a short ride from her home in Del Rey. It's raining out, but braving the elements on the bike is just something Wohler has learned to accept. Even snow doesn't keep her off the pedals most of the time. Right now, she's wearing a paper-thin rain jacket, shorts, and a bike helmet, of course. On her feet, flip-flops. This is about a mile or so to the grocery store. It's like no big deal. All she has inside her backpack is a bike lock, but that will be different on the way home. 
As she reaches Old Town Alexandria, she's vigilant about using hand signals to communicate with drivers. The main thing I'm still a little worried about is like the random drunk guy or um, texting, like uh, drivers that text. Inside the store, she heads to the refrigerated meat section and grabs a couple of packs of tofu. Got two vegetarian kids. Uh, hit the tofurkey pretty hard. The shopping trip doesn't last long, but Roller's backpack is filled to the brim as she heads back out to the bike rack outside the store. We got cheese, a pineapple, a bottle of wine, some tofu, some cartons of egg whites, let's see, spinach, tortillas, a couple of canned goods, five pounds of apples. We did all right. We did okay today. Despite the full backpack, the short ride home is even easier than the trip out, in part because the rain has stopped. Wohler says making grocery runs with the bike instead of a car forces her to make daily trips so she can fit everything on her back. But while she may be buying her food in smaller chunks, she's certainly not eating less. I do ride between 150 and 200 miles a week on the bike, so... All of that effort is going into extra plates of food, so a lot of people are kind of jealous, like, oh, wow, I wish I could eat like that. Wooler is quick to tell you how switching from driving to biking has changed her life for the better. But she'll readily admit that living in bike-friendly Del Rey made her decision relatively easy. And she says having older children, one's 20 and the other's 17 now, helped as well. I think it would be much more difficult with younger kids that you really are tied into a lifestyle that requires a lot more time on the road and a lot more carpooling. But now that my kids are older and more independent, it's just more social embarrassment on their part. (laughs) But Wohler says ultimately her children just want her to be happy. And while her initial decision sprung from a mix of environmental concern and a desire for a new physical challenge, she says it's made her happier on a daily basis than she could have ever imagined. I never anticipated the payoff in, like, mood regulation. (laughs) I mean, I'm so happy all the time. I just feel like I'm in a great mood. I'm never, like, keyed up or, you know, the thinking like, oh, great, you know, it's four o'clock. I'm going to be stuck in traffic. I had wanted to go to the gym and now I can't do that. It's like, I'm done. I don't have any of that. She's saving money. She can eat whatever she wants, doesn't have to go to the gym to stay in shape. And she's happy all the time. Sounds pretty good, right? So what's stopping the rest of us from putting the bike pedal to the metal? Oh, yeah, we're all just worried about saving our children from social embarrassment. Right. That's it. I'm Jonathan Wilson. This story was informed by sources in the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share experiences with us and a way for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the Public Insight Network at metroconnection.org slash PIN. Time for a break, but when we get back... Inspiring a childhood love for America's pastime. I would hope that if a Jackie Robinson or Sergeant Shriver came to my camp, they would say, hey, I like that program. And they would ask me some critical questions about it. How can we make it better? And maintaining inspiration in school against all odds. Not many people in my family uh, went to college or even finished high school, so I wanted to, you know, go and make them proud. Those stories and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. 
And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, our theme is inspiration. And so far, as it happens, our quest for the inspirational has involved a lot of time on bikes and in metro trains. Well, it turns out that our next story also has a bit of a transportation thing going on. Only in this case, it's a transportation thing that takes us back more than 50 years to an era when people were all about the thrill of the open road. At the time, the nation was in the midst of a big freeway building spree, kicked off by President Dwight Eisenhower. A road program that will take this nation out of its antiquated shackles of secondary roads all over this country and give us the types of highways that we need for this great mass of voter vehicles. Eisenhower's interstate freeway system gave birth to today's Capital Beltway. But the plan also called for two inner beltways that would have paved over some of the oldest and most vibrant neighborhoods in the district. And that didn't sit well with a whole lot of folks, many of whom raised their voices in protest in the 1960s. And one of them was Anne Hughes Hargrove, who went on to spend the next half century fighting to save D.C.'s old neighborhoods. Inspired by all her hard work, the D.C. Historic Preservation Office recently awarded Hargrove a Lifetime Achievement Award. Jacob Fenston has the story. I'm meeting Anne Hargrove at the McDonald's on 18th Street and Columbia Road Northwest. Yes, are you Anne? Yes. This fast food restaurant in Adams Morgan is unusual. No drive-through, no roadside marquee. It's hidden inside an old arts and crafts brick mansion. McDonald's didn't buy the building out of a love of historic architecture. Their intention was to tear it down. The building, designed by renowned architect Wadi Wood, is still standing because Hargrove and other neighbors mounted a noisy campaign to save it. McDonald's eventually agreed to a compromise. They keep the building, even restoring it with brick matching the original. But we found the brick and convinced the company to do it. It was kind of fun, actually. Preserving a city's history is often made up of little battles like this, saving one building at a time. But there was one big fight in Hargrove's lifetime over the tangle of freeways envisioned across the district. We walked down bustling 18th Street toward Hargrove's house. She moved here in the mid-1960s and fell in love with this neighborhood of quirky businesses and old buildings. But she soon learned of the plan that would change everything. All of this was to be torn down, every bit of it. I can show you the plans. It really was amazing. They just were going to tear down everything. Hargrove's house was built at the turn of the 20th century. The house and the whole block she lives on were slated to be raised to make way for freeway-centric urban renewal. Inside, her house is filled with stacks of papers and big rolled-up maps, the paperwork from a lifetime of historic preservation. A lot of this stuff is so old. I think all of this is urban renewal. Now, this is the land acquisition maps. One freeway map shows the inner beltway, Six lanes along New Hampshire Avenue through DuPont Circle, then across the city along U Street. Old neighborhoods that were part of the original federal city. Neighborhoods that today are among the district's most desirable and expensive. It would have removed thousands of houses and thousands of people would have been displaced by it. So it's a horrendous thing to think of just in terms of the carnage of the people affected. 
away from transportation now, we turn to education. If you're a high schooler in Washington, D.C., it can take a lot of inspiration to graduate. It can take even more inspiration to graduate at the top of your class. But to graduate at the top of your class, despite some serious personal challenges and struggles, that just might take the most inspiration of all. Kavita Cardoza recently attended a scholar's luncheon for D.C. valedictorians, salutatorians, and other star achievers, and brings us their stories. Timothy Ray is the valedictorian of Baloo High School in Southeast D.C. His family has struggled financially and spent time in homeless shelters, but he says he was determined not to go down the path of drugs and violence. I lost a lot of friends. They see me going in different directions, so really they didn't want to be my friend no more, but I was just determined I was going to graduate. I was going to graduate on top. Every morning, Ray would walk his two little sisters to their two different schools and then go to class himself. His days were long and often exhausting, but he says the struggle was worth it on graduation day. My mom was happy. She was ecstatic. It felt good to see her smile. It felt good to see her smile. 
Sylvia Ba moved to the U.S. from Cameroon four years ago. At first, she was more comfortable speaking French than English. I had to study twice as hard. <laughs> in English classes, for example, I have to learn the words and master it, then use it in sentences every single day. Ba is the valedictorian of Coolidge High School in Northwest D.C. She says she was motivated by all the opportunities available here if she worked hard enough. Back home, if you have a family that's in the government area, that's when you become somebody. But if you are a regular person, you can become no one. Here, you can actually become what you want, not actually be born into what you are. Often students say their families inspired them to stay focused. Ryan Perkins-Sturdivant is a scholar-athlete from Northeast D.C.'s McKinley Technology High School. The most inspiring thing was my late brother who passed in 2006. Perkins-Sturdivant was 12 when his brother died. For the past five years, he says he coped with his sadness and anger by working hard on his studies and on the football field. He wishes his brother were here to see him get a full scholarship for college. He just, just would love it because that was the type of dude he was. He just loved when I was succeeding. He made me feel like I was special because I didn't have a father. So he was there as my father figure. Anytime I fall and bump my leg, I cry. He'd wipe my tears and tell me don't cry. Just, and he's just always there for me, you know, someone I could talk to about anything. Sharon Kinney says it wasn't easy becoming the valedictorian of Washington Metropolitan High School. I had to work very, very hard. Not many people in my family uh, went to college or even finished high school, so I wanted to, you know, go and make them proud. But Kinney gives credit to her mother, who took a second job to help her pay for college supplies. She has to be at work at like 5.30, and I don't wake up until about 8. And she would call me early and tell me to get up, you know, get ready for school so I don't be late, and um, she was always there. School's Chancellor Kaya Henderson spoke to Kinney and other top students at a recent luncheon. She told the 75 graduating seniors they're the best and brightest of DCPS. We expect that you will prove to the world that the public school system in the nation's capital turns out some of the most amazing people in this world. Is that all right? Henderson hopes this event will become a DCPS tradition. I'm Kavita Cardoza. As July marches on, we're a little more than halfway through baseball season. Baseball has, of course, long been known as America's pastime. For children in some of D.C.'s poorest neighborhoods, though, baseball is a pastime in which they've never had the chance to partake. But, as Heather Taylor tells us, one local baseball camp is working to change that. Stroll by the well-tended baseball field at Friendship Playground in northwest Washington this summer, and if you're not a baseball-loving kid, you'll probably wish you were. Blue and white bleacher stands are full of pint-sized campers, raring to go, getting a pep talk from Coach Dan Thorner. The theme of the day, feel good, be positive, and try and help a teammate out. This is Home Run Baseball Camp, a kind of baseball lover's paradise with a very simple mission, to provide a safe, 
nurturing environment where kids between the ages of 4 and 12 can learn baseball skills. This summer marks the camp's 20th summer in northwest D.C. But founder John McCarthy says camps like this shouldn't just be available to those who can afford it. And so he's developed a camp program with Savoy Elementary in southeast D.C. It's part of the Building Bridges Through Baseball initiative. We welcome 20 to 30 youngsters from Ward 8, Ward 7, who may not have a chance to go to good baseball camps. We also have a reading component, so they spend some time during the day reading. You see youngsters who get a chance to grow on the baseball field, bond with our coaches, bond with each other. The camp's other partners include George Washington University, D.C. Parks and Recreation, and the mayor's office. McCarthy thinks programs like it can have great benefit for one big reason. We're going to move society forward. We all have to do things to build bridges and welcome people, reach out and create common ground with other people. And the easiest people to do that with is children. McCarthy says his thinking was inspired by his family. My father was a writer about social justice, Coleman McCarthy. My uncle was a journalist who wrote about social justice. And so when I was a youngster, I was exposed to my father covering people who he called on the margins of society. And we met a lot of heroic people. My dad would say, those people are serving others. There are people that are trying to change society through their personal force and service. And why baseball? It forces you to understand that you're part of a bigger picture and that you must put the team first and work on your, your skills in building team, uh, teamwork. It's a well, more welcoming sport because many different kids of all different backgrounds and, and skill level might be able to find a way to contribute. But achieving a successful program isn't without challenges. A youngster can come visit Friendship Playground as a guest camper and come to Homer Baseball Camp, but some of the issues in their life come with them, and they need to be able to learn to uh, develop the tools to help process that. McCarthy attributes the program's success to staff members like Cameron Wyndham. The most challenging kids to work with were the ones who, I don't know, just, just felt a little bit more uncomfortable than others. My role was just more a matter of just trying to gain trust. John McCarthy considers Wyndham a kindred spirit because of his high level of social consciousness. And like McCarthy, Wyndham credits his father. My dad was always very a very social conscious person. He always encourages me to help out the community any way we can. Looking ahead, John McCarthy says he'd like the city to challenge other camps to develop similar programs for needy kids. And I would hope that if Jackie Robinson or Sergeant Shriver came to my camp, they would say, hey, I like that program. That, that's, and they would ask me some critical questions about it. How can we make it better? Just the kind of questions that inspire McCarthy and his home run baseball camp staff to keep pushing ahead. I'm Heather Taylor. Up next, how D.C.'s transgender community is inspiring a world premiere play, The Tea Party. When the project started, I took tea from transgender. And in this most recent incarnation, I was standing in for transformation. Plus, finding fashion inspiration in Washington when the mercury rises. Today, I'm wearing a tan and white striped seersucker, but I paired it also with a uh, sailboat Nantucket red ascot. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are all about inspiration. In this next story, we'll hear about a world premiere play inspired by true stories of gender transformation. Washington, D.C.'s transgender population is growing. It definitely faces its share of struggles, though. 40% of respondents to the Washington Transgender Needs Survey say they don't have a high school diploma. 42% say they're unemployed. And 19% report they don't have a place to live. But this new play, The Tea Party, seeks to celebrate this community and bring its trials, tribulations, and, yes, triumphs to the stage. Georgetown theater professor Natsu Onoda Power has been developing the piece since 2008. And next week, Forum Theater is presenting the play as its season finale at Roundhouse Theater's Silver Spring Space. I recently sat down with Natsu Onoda Power during a rehearsal and started by asking her about the play's title. So let's explain um, t- to people listening that when we say tea party, we're not T-E-A party. We're right. the letter T. Capital T. It's capital T. Yes. And when the project started in 2007, well, there was no tea party, T-E-A party then, right? But I know two people who met through this organization called uh, TGEA, Transgender Education Association of Greater Washington. And the two people are married. They both used to be biologically male. Now they are women. And I was asking them where they met, and they said at a tea convention. And I thought it was TEA convention, you know, and I wanted to play with that word. And then tea was standing in for transgender in 2008. But as I worked through the show, I decided that it's standing for transgression because the stories grew and became not just about transgender issues, but uh, about gender transgression in general. And in this most recent incarnation, I decided that it wasn't standing in for transgression anymore. It was standing in for transformation because people are not always trying to transgress. It is transforming. So we're calling it Celebrating Gender Transformation in D.C. And all the stories are real, collected from people that I know. How did you go about finding the stories? I happened to get to know some people who identify as transgender in 2007, 2008. And I was really interested in the community and the stories that they were telling me just as personal stories, as friends. And then I thought the stories were so theatrical and empowering, and I thought that I would share with other people. Can you give an example of one of the stories? Um, so I was out with a friend of mine who identifies as a crossdresser, and he identifies as male, but likes to wear dresses and look sexy, and he's a really fun friend. So we were out, and he told me that he invited someone that he didn't know from an ad on Craigslist. She looks like a model. She is, like, really gorgeous. What was her ad? She was looking for a guy, you know, in casual encounters. Oh. And it turns out that this person was a fully transitioned person, male to female, and um, was an escort. But, you know, these two people were very interested in each other's lives. Very different mode of dressing, right? Because being trans is his profession for one person. And the other person, my friend, was a casual crossdresser. And we had a really interesting night out. I mean, I've always liked guys, and my parents were so supportive. So, I mean, you obviously 
want to be with guys, right? No, not, no, no, actually. Well, I guess you're married, so that must make it difficult, I understand. No, I like women. Yeah, you like women, but you want to be with guys. No, actually not at all. <laughs> well, why would you Another example of something from the play that we might see or a story we might hear. One of the scenes is the very first scene of the play, which is a text message exchange between two people. And it's read verbatim. Is this your new dress, question mark? Yes. Cute. It's based yeah. on actual text message like exchanges. And I strung together a few different ones to make it a little bit ambiguous, not specific. I really like that one too, comma. I have another one just like it, but I didn't put it online. It's a little naughty. This skirt is so short, exclamation point. Too short, question mark? No, comma, not with your gorgeous legs. Smiley face. And one of the cast members happens to write explicit queer rap which I'm calling transgenre music, and we're making it into a live-action music video. Woke up on the wrong side of disaster. How couldn't I be beaten any faster? Thought of you, so I enjoyed the love of my life. Now I'm null and void. I'm devoid, completely destroyed. Feeling like a case for Sigmund Freud. A horn ripped off, a blood brick red. I'm left with damage, broken in the head. I have been working on since 2008. And what's interesting about it is that in the five years, people's lives have changed whose stories we told in the play. So the play has a different ending now because people's lives have changed. So will it keep changing if the play keeps being performed? Yeah, I would think so. And then maybe new things will get added, some things get subtracted. And then you also learn so much from sharing it with the audience, right? And then then you get to know the experience a little bit more and you keep tailoring it so it's more enjoyable and more engaging. That was Natsuo Onoda Power, the playwright and director of The Tea Party, running July 17th through the 27th at Roundhouse Silver Spring. We have more information about the show on our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now to a different sort of theater, one that is taking the D.C. region by storm. Puppetry. Puppetry is popping up all over the place these days, it seems, at the Studio Theater in northwest D.C. It's the final weekend of the sci-fi puppet show Baby Universe. At the Atlas Performing Arts Center on 8th Street Northeast, you can see Burmese puppetry. In downtown Washington, puppets have found their way into this year's Capitol Fringe Festival. And through the middle of August, Rockville's Strathmore Mansion is hosting puppeteers from all over the country for the summer-long festival Puppets Take Strathmore. So why is 2013 shaping up to be the year of the puppet? Emily Berman went in search of answers. All right, so what we'll do here is we open up our clay, these polymer clay. Don Becker is hunched over a desk in his studio, pushing a metal tool into a ball of clay. And I'll grab some eyes here. 
glass eyes. Becker's work is part of the Strathmore Festival's gallery exhibition of puppets from all over the world. His marionettes are small, no bigger than a Barbie doll. And right now he's making the puppet's head, which doesn't look anything like a Barbie head. It's funny people's reaction to my work because I don't see it as creepy or dark at all. But there are some people who just walk by and go, oh, my God, you must have horrible nightmares. His marionettes are goofy goblins, disturbed-looking fairies, and never-before-seen space creatures. But this isn't all he does. He's contracted by theaters all over town to make puppets. People don't expect. They see a puppet on stage, they don't know exactly what to expect. Just because it looks one way, you really don't know what it is. For instance, you can have a a puppet walk onto the stage. Puppet's feet are on the floor, walking along the stage. And then all of a sudden, before you knew it, the puppet's maybe up and flying. Later this summer, Strathmore will offer workshops to teach participants how to create their own puppets. One of the workshops for kids will be taught by Chicago-based artist Blair Thomas. Kids tend to like puppet theater, Thomas says, because it feels very real. They don't look at the puppeteer at all. They're talking to the puppet. They, They just go there immediately. But for the adult... It's uh, this this kind of place now where people kind of go in and out of that belief where that where you you get caught. You're like, oh wow, that does look real. No, that's not real. Oh, that does look. It looks really real. That looks really, no, it's not real. That's not real at all. And you're, you're and this place is is engaging to a, an adult mind because it seems familiar and human-like, but is beyond what humans can do. That's what makes puppets seem powerful and to some a little creepy. In early August, Thomas will perform his acclaimed solo puppet show, Hard-Headed Heart, at Strathmore. It's three tales about love in three distinct styles of puppetry that all incorporate music into the storyline. But if you're looking to see something sooner, across town in Columbia Heights, a group of actors is rehearsing in the basement of the Gala Hispanic Theater. The Pointless Theater Company is getting ready for its show, Mark Twain's Riverboat Extravaganza. Scott Whalen is a founding member. We are trying to create puppet theater for adults and create theater that we enjoy. The group is made up of students recently graduated from the University of Maryland's theater department, which had for a time an artist-in-residency program funded by the family of Jim Henson. It supported an artist working in puppetry to come to College Park and teach students the craft. Without that, Wayland says, they never would have fallen in love with puppetry. It is being narrated by Mark Twain. It takes place on a riverboat. And we have uh, Mark Twain's players, Becky Thatcher, Jim Griffin, Tom Sawyer, and Huckleberry Finn, telling five classic American folk tales through different styles of puppetry. The show is part of the Capitol Fringe Festival and is playing five times over the next two weeks. These puppets are aimed at adults, but chances are your kids might like it too. I'm Emily Berman. You can learn more about all the shows Emily mentioned on our website, metroconnection.org. Now, it's been said that when it comes to being sartorially inspired, 
D.C. isn't exactly a fashion destination. But here's the thing. When the temperature rises, more and more Washingtonians are donning something that's pretty darn hot. Or cool, rather. Shira Clapper has the story. I was riding down Connecticut Avenue on the 42 bus last summer when I looked up and saw before me two men dressed in head-to-toe seersucker suits. And from that moment on, I couldn't escape seeing those blue and white stripes everywhere I went. My name is Justin Gisperninger. Can you describe what you're wearing today? So today I'm wearing a light uh, tan and white striped seersucker, um, but I paired it also with a uh, sailboat Nantucket red uh, ascot, which I made myself actually, and a blue belt, which matches the shoes. So if you can't already picture Justin, let's just say that he stands out in a crowd. And that's part of the point. You make a statement when you wear seersucker. Ben Pajak would know. He owns more than 50 items made out of seersucker. Um, D.C. is not a place necessarily where people, people will, in public, come out of the, out of the blue and say, uh, say something about how, how you dress. But for some reason, seersucker solicits comments from people who you don't even know. You don't see that with any other fabric. But seersucker isn't just about style. For people like my friend Phil Klein, the choice is one of utility and not fashion. I was kind of always skeptical about the seersucker. You know, I just always associated it with sort of, you know, old southern men in, in straw hats and so forth or barbershop quartet or something like that. But you know, a friend of mine sort of convinced me to, to try it on. And, uh, you know, the material you can't really argue with. I mean, it is much more comfortable for uh, hot weather. When seersucker first came to the U.S., it was popular with working-class men in the South for a simple reason. Cotton was a cheaper textile. Only later did seersucker become a symbol of high prep. That happened when Harvard and Yale students donned the suits as a way of dressing down. Local costume designer Judy Hansen explains why. I think that in the 20s and 30s, when there was this uh, big collegiate look, this style, the Ivy League style, became popular, one of the things that they also looked for was sort of this reverse snobbery, this sort of dressing down. And I think it was sort of a patrician thing, like, I am so aristocratic that I can wear ordinary clothes. Unlike those preppies from long ago, people who wear seersucker today may be looking to capture the romance of a former era. That's one of Judy Hansen's theories. I wonder if it's looking back more than it is uh, looking patrician. If it's just not, look, you know, if, if it isn't nostalgia-driven that we're, you know, we, we want things to be the way they were. It's this feeling of something missing in our modern lives that inspired D.C. residents Holly Bass and Eric Channing to create the Seersucker Social, an annual event entirely devoted to the wearing of seersucker. What the, the Seersucker Social does is give people an environment to enjoy themselves in the way that our grandparents did. And I think socially we've uh, let go of so many formalities uh, and, and institutions that did not necessarily need to be dismissed. Of course, we, we moved past beyond a, a lot of things that we wouldn't care to sort of reinstitute, but I think in some cases we threw the baby away with the bathwater. Attendees of the Seersucker Social revisit the more genteel ways of generations past. Sipping lemonade on the lawn, 
dancing to old swing tunes, treating each other to old-fashioned etiquette. These are the traditions that Holly and Eric are trying to bring back, even for just one day. I would even say that the events kind of have this dreamlike quality. And then everyone does look really beautiful, and they feel beautiful, and everyone's smiling, and the music's wonderful, and it's just, it's kind of magical. So why stop at one day? What if the magic of the seersucker social could last all summer? Everybody dressed in seersucker <laughs> all July and August long. That would be my dream for Washington, D.C. This story was produced by Shira Clapper and Ellen Rolfes. Want to check out a slideshow of Washingtonians and all their seersucker splendor? Head over to our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, and Kavitha Cardoza, along with Heather Taylor, Shira Clapper, and Ellen Rolfes. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our interns are Eva Harder and Kayla Peoples. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a particular story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or look us up on iTunes, Stitcher, or the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we cook up our annual Down the Hatch show, celebrating the latest in D.C. food. We'll get brewing at D.C.'s first kombucha company. We'll go vegan in Ocean City. We'll learn the supersized secrets of a local competitive eating champ. And we'll check out a new urban farm on the grounds of a public housing complex. Sometimes the assumption is that people don't know what's good for them, etc., etc. I think that that assumption is overrated. I think people know what's good for them. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.